Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Kansas City Leaders Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, David Maples, and today I'm here with Kyle J. Benson-Smith, and we're really excited to have him on the show today. He runs a not-for-profit called Determination Incorporated. So um, I want to just kind of dive into this today, okay? So a little bit, I want you to tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Kansas City. Sure. So... Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to, to have you on here. the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at Determination Incorporated, we help formerly incarcerated people start and grow businesses. But before I started the organization in 2018, I moved to Kansas City in 2014. I grew up in a small town in Missouri called Mexico, Missouri. Did you know there was a Mexico, Missouri? I was unaware that there was a Mexico. Now Missouri. you know. We we officially say Mexicoans. Uh, it's outside of Columbia, which is where the University of Missouri is, uh, go Mizzou. So I grew up there and then went to school at Truman State University in Northeast Missouri and got a degree in theater. And I worked at a theater festival in Massachusetts uh, one summer and then followed a bunch of friends up to New York. And so I lived in New York for four years after school. And after spending four years in New York and really enjoying it, I wanted something in between the biggest, best city in the world and tiny, small town Mexico, Missouri, and started to look around in this area to be near family and started to hear about the entrepreneurship community in Kansas City. And at the time, I was working in fitness. I worked at a CrossFit gym in Manhattan, and I wanted to open a gym of my own. So I moved to Kansas City in 2014 with that goal, and I can share some of that story later, one of my first entrepreneurial fails. Uh, and But after I stopped working in fitness, I had an interest in the entrepreneurship community and some experience in marketing and started working at KC SourceLink, which is an organization based out of UMKC, the University of Missouri, Kansas City here. And KC SourceLink acts as a central hub for all of the entrepreneurial support organizations around Kansas City, of which there are over 260. And so I started working there and got interested in entrepreneurship as a pathway out of poverty and started to look around for a community that I could support and started to hear about reentry and people coming home from prison and kind of took it from there. So, um, so you've had kind of an interesting journey to get here and I've read, I've read some about you a little bit and about like your journey. So tell me, let's really dive into, um, determination incorporated. So as I understand it, you help provide a path and entrepreneurship to help formerly incarcerated individuals, um, kind of lift themselves up after they've been released from a penal institution. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell me a little bit about like your role. What made you decide to start this? And then what do you find most rewarding about it? Mm -hmm. So I'll jump off from working at Casey SourceLink and being interested in entrepreneurship as a pathway out of poverty. So started to look around for a community that I could support and started to hear about reentry and how unnecessarily difficult it is for our brothers and sisters coming home from incarceration to reacclimate into society. They face so many barriers. Um, some of the biggest are housing. Uh, having a place to live with a felony on your record can be very difficult. Transportation is really difficult around Kansas City. We do have the bus system, but that is way harder than having a car. And then, of course, getting a job can be difficult as well. In Missouri, the latest data I've seen is from 2020, and 45% of people on parole in Missouri are unemployed. So, when I was working in the entrepreneurship community, I was interested in supporting folks in reentry. And so I started to get to know nonprofits that work in that area and learned about organizations like Second Chance, like Connections to Success, like Journey to New Life that provide help for people in terms of finding a job. But I wasn't hearing about any organizations that were helping people start and grow businesses. And I specifically remember sitting down at the desk of a probation and parole officer who had been in the field for over 10 years and saying, hey, I'm thinking about starting this business support group for formerly incarcerated people. Do you have any clients who may be interested? And he said, they've always had people come to them interested in starting a business, but never knew where to send them. And they had so many other things going on that they always had to back burner it. So I said, well, here's our flyer. We're starting this group and kind of just took it from there. And the second part of your question was what's most rewarding about the work? And 
I think it's just getting the chance to work with people one-on-one. As much as we're able to share education or share resources or maybe help someone feel inspired, I feel just as inspired by doing the work as well. Because seeing the resilience that people have built up after being incarcerated and seeing them wanting to make a fresh start and wanting to do something new and different with their life is really inspiring to me. So I really like working with people. Um, so just kind of the, to kind of chime into one of the things you said here is that, you know, um, according to the statistic you quoted, 45% of people who are formerly incarcerated do not have gainful employment right now. And one of the biggest challenges for someone is as they're leaving the penal system, as I understand it, and I have a personal story about that. I have, I have family who, um, you know, finished, they'd done their time and done their part. And one of the biggest challenges when they come out, at least from what I understand, is that they said, you know, I've, I've, I've got, I've done my time, I've done my bit, I'm going to go out in the community and be involved. And they literally find, I mean, there's that checkbox, you know, have you ever been convicted of a felony before? And in some places, people use it in housing applications, right? And it makes it very, very difficult without a huge support structure, it's very difficult for these people to really get a leg up and really um, kind of start their lives over. Um, and I've always personally found that to be a bit a bit unfair because you've done your bit. You've done your time. And most people do. Um, the stat that I know is that um, I think 90% of people who are formerly incarcerated believe that they'll have received some kind of employment within about 90 days of exiting the penal system. And the reality of it is a year later, especially if you're a man, it's it's less than half. And um, and then that contributes to that kind of cycle. You know, it's the recidivism thing. You know, it's it's and that, that's the that, and and ultimately, regardless of how people feel about uh, the penal system, you know, I I fundamentally think that it's kind of failing these people as they re-enter our systems. We want these people to be uh, to have part of the community. These people have families. You know, we want them to be have jobs. We want them on the tax rolls if nothing else, right? So, and the, we want them to be contributing to the community. And one of the biggest ways that I see that that can happen is uh, by getting them gainful employment. I didn't mean to go off on a soapbox there, but that's no, how I, no, that's how I totally feel about true. it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's very much true. Um, having a felony on your record is really a scarlet letter that can follow a person around for the rest of your life. And I'm with you. I mean, you would like to think that someone's home and they've done their time and they get a fresh start. But as as you said so well, that is rarely ever the case. It is such a stigmatized part of our community. And it's really unfortunate because we know that one of the biggest predictors of recidivism, of returning to prison, is poverty. So without financial opportunity, that make someone more desperate and they may be led back to what led them to prison in the first place. So entrepreneurship is, is a leg up or way to move out of poverty because ultimately if they have the ability to get into one of these entrepreneurial type programs that you have, um, that means they kind of get to chart their own destiny in a way, right? They're not necessarily relying on someone giving them a shot necessarily. And, and I guess that's kind of what your organization does. Am I correct? Yeah, that's the goal. We we know that entrepreneurship is not going to be everyone's path. Data from the Kauffman Foundation says that three out of a thousand people will become entrepreneurs. But for those who are pursuing entrepreneurship, and you're right, perhaps there's a higher percentage of formerly incarcerated people because of the stigmas, because of wanting to be their own boss, because of not wanting to have someone else give them a chance, are interested in entrepreneurship. Those people who do choose that path, I think it's important that they get the support they need to succeed so that, like you said earlier, they can make a living, they can provide for themselves and their family, they can stay home, they can give back to the community. Whenever I first started the organization, I started to hear about folks who were having success with through entrepreneurship after incarceration. One of those is Sarah Montine, and she's still on our board. Whenever she got home from prison about a decade ago, she was at that time living homeless in a shack, uh, trying to figure out what she was going to do next with her life. And she decided while she was reading the newspaper 
and watching the movie Pursuit of Happiness relentlessly, that she saw some opportunities for some cleaning jobs, cleaning on construction sites. And so she decided that that is what she was going to focus on. And she just started walking onto construction sites and saying, hey, I'm I'm here. I'd love to clean. And uh, I'm starting a business in this. And she just learned on the job. She made good relationships with people and actually learned from the people that she was contracting with how to do the job and just built the business from there, where over the course of years, she was able to grow into a business that grossed hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue and has actually employed people who are home from incarceration as well. She makes a really big focus to employ people who uh, are in recovery or who are recently home from incarceration, which is a part of our goal as well as an organization that folks would be able to hire other people coming home from incarceration to provide them a chance. So um, that's actually that's actually really interesting. So she's actually kind of doubling down on this by the fact that she's not only she not only started her own company, but she's actually giving other people who were in similar set situations a chance to move forward. Um, to move the conversation a little bit beyond that, are there any things? Because um, yeah, I, I in my in my other life, you know, in the Buck Stops Here podcast, I do consulting for business owners, and I've actually put business owners in touch with certain programs. Because um, there are certain programs to help off off, uh, there are sometimes state grants and other things that these businesses can even avail themselves to if they're if they're actually hiring uh, people who were previously incarcerated. Do you know about any of those programs? Or is there a way that maybe we could shift the paradigm a little bit for business owners? Like, why don't we take a chance on these people? Yeah, there's a, a national tax credit available called the Workforce Opportunity uh, Workforce. Yes, I'm not getting the acronym exactly right, but like you described, that's a tax credit for people who hire formerly incarcerated people. It is something that some businesses take advantage of. I remember conversations with some of my friends who work in reentry that say it's not a huge driver for the actual employers, probably because it sounds like a bunch of paperwork. Like it doesn't usually change the conversation with that employer when it comes to, will they hire formerly incarcerated people? Oh, only if I get a tax credit. Instead, what those organizations lead with is these are great employees. These are driven people who, when given a chance, will be dependable for you and your business. And I think leading with that value is of more interest to the business owners and gives more dignity to formerly incarcerated people as well. Absolutely. I mean, I can definitely I can definitely see how that would be very attractive. So I guess uh, my question is, is that through your organization, in what ways are you contributing to making Kansas City a better place to live, play and work? Like, how do you see this as helping, you know, kind of a rising tide lifts all boats? You know, how does this help the community overall? Yeah, I would like to think and do believe that by supporting our community of formerly incarcerated entrepreneurs and and them supporting one another and each other lifting each other up, that we provide, you know, help one person find more well-being, more satisfaction, more opportunity, feel more supportive, so that that creates ripples in their family and in the broader community as well. I also know we publish a twice monthly High Five Thursday newsletter where we share about members of our community and what they're doing in their business. And I know that's really a positive beacon for people as well, uh, helping to change slowly, but helping to open people's mindsets to formerly incarcerated people and what people who have a felony record are up to. And yeah, I it's taken me a long time to learn it, like on a personal level, because uh, I I definitely grew up in the generation of like, you can change the world. And I've only really recently adopted the idea that you can really only help one person at a time, but I believe that matters too. And so that's what we try to do through our organization. You, well, you mentioned, um, you know, changing the world, you mentioned kind of the ripple effect, um, by changing one person. I mean, how many people do they touch? Right. At the end of the day, it's it's kind of a ripple effect. If you throw a rock in a pond, I mean, it, it has. I don't know. I I I, and and we may cut this out of the podcast. I mean, I don't know. Just kind of, I'm thinking about it a little bit. I was thinking about like you know, changing one life, you impact their community, you impact their kids, 
you impact their loved ones. Um, just from my own standpoint, you know, my own family, I was thinking about like how, um, you know, my brother, you know, um, I went and visited him um, and I saw, and he was in the penal system in Georgia and I saw, I saw state institutions. I saw private prisons, which I thought were abhorrent. Like a guy in a cell next to him died with appendicitis because they wouldn't call the doctor in because it cost too much after hours and he was malingering. And I mean, the guy was in there for kiting checks. He didn't deserve to die in terrible pain. Anyway, and I'm not trying to, I just, some of the stuff I saw was just like really, it kind of made you angry. You were like, dude, I mean, it's, it's prison. You know, this is not supposed to be a gulag. You know, the idea is that we're supposed to have a path. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of funny. It made me get interested in the United States penal system anyway, because like our prison system in the early 1900s, like 1910 to 1920, was considered a model prison system for the rest of the world. We paroled people into the army. We did, we did a whole bunch of different things that were really considered, and like Scandinavian countries do it now. Scandinavian prisons look more like college dorms in some cases, right? And the recidivism rates are much lower. Like we're talking like at seven years, they're talking about recidivism rates for even heavy drug offenders and things like that, like people with bad addiction things where the recidivism rates were, can be approach 70% at seven years, you know, they're looking at 15, you know, and it's like, even if you don't care about people who went to prison, it's like, dude, you don't want to pay taxes for them, right? Wouldn't we be better off? And so I'm not trying to appeal to people like that. We'll probably cut all this out, but I've really no, thought it's, about it's it. really important. Well, I just, I just like, how do you, how do you get to have a conversation with business owners? Like, hey, man, dude, ch- take a chance on these people. I mean, whiskey tango foxtrot, mate. I mean, it's like, why are we? Is it, is it just lock them up and throw away the key? I mean, what if it was your kid? What if your son or daughter or your cousin or brother? I mean, it's just, it's very different. Mm-hmm. And, and look, I get it. We all make mistakes. I, do, I certainly don't want to be judged by my worst day in life. How many of us would be in jail had we been caught doing something we weren't allowed to do? You know, I don't know. Um, so, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there. I just it's, it's stuff I think about sometimes, it's and good. I'm like, how do we? You know, I don't know. And it really matters. Yeah, when it comes to the ripple effect, we know from data that the child of an incarcerated parent is six times more likely to go to prison than their peers. So by helping someone stay home with their family, you reduce that chance and hopefully can break that intergenerational cycle. And I know the first time that I went into a prison, it was really shocking to me. It wasn't even the worst conditions, uh, but just to come out and go, oh, man, we treat people like that. And we also call it rehabilitative. We call that corrections. How, how can that setting, how can going from a terrible circumstance to a terrible or circumstance equal something better? It just didn't make sense to me. And so like you have described the different prison models that exist around the world that are more humane and more dignified, I think are really important to consider. We still in America today have a very retributive justice mindset around people who have committed a crime. We're still very much focused on punishment. You you see it every time you turn on the local news and they're talking about the most recent murder or the most recent terrible thing that went on in the community. We all reflexively go, well, get rid of them. We need to get rid of that person. And Perhaps and very likely people do need to be removed from society, especially if they are a risk to themselves or others. But that doesn't solve all the problems. And it certainly doesn't get to the root issues that led to the problem in the first place, which in a lot of cases can be mental health issues, can be uh, substance abuse, and can be living in a community that is impoverished and that is dangerous as well where people don't have the chance to pursue other things. So I do think it's important that more people open their eyes to the problems that exist around incarceration and mass incarceration in our society. That's a whole nother conversation about how mass incarceration goes all the way back to slavery in the United States, uh, was really ramped up around the war on drugs, where you very much saw the numbers that increased. I believe right now in the United States, there are 1.9 9 million people who are incarcerated, 95 or more percent of those are going to be home someday. In Kansas City, 
I've seen the number that 4,000 people come home from prison every year in our area. And I do believe that it's important that we support those people so that they don't go back and we don't keep wasting taxpayer dollars on things that aren't working. In Missouri, our recidivism rate, 46% of people return to prison within five years of release. And if your business was only... 54% successful, you probably wouldn't be in business anymore. So there's something that we could be doing differently. That's not to say that there's not positive things going on within the prison system, which I can talk more about that. But we need to keep an eye on this and constantly be improving that system if we want our communities to get healthier and safer and more prosperous for everybody. Um, That's a very interesting point. The uh, so let's talk for a minute. Um, let's talk about kind of the initiatives you've seen going on in the prison systems here that you think are bearing fruit, that are having a positive impact. Like, what do you kind of say? Yeah, on here in Kansas City, we straddle the state line, of course. So we've done some work in the Kansas prisons and more work on the Missouri side. In Kansas, they have the prison systems have strong partnerships with private industry. They actually have businesses that are running inside of institutions or with folks who are coming from the institutions. And I've heard anecdotally that that's a very positive program for people because it gives them work skills. It allows them to work in a work environment. And they also get a little bit bigger of a paycheck than they would with just a prison job. And of course, they also build relationships with people who are on the outside so that they have support when they come home. Um, There's different nonprofit organizations that are doing good work on the Missouri and Kansas side inside of the institutions. One that or two that we've partnered with on the Kansas side are Brothers in Blue Reentry and Reaching Out from Within. Brothers in Blue Reentry is a faith-based program that actually has a housing wing inside of a prison in Lansing and does personal professional development with people, does group therapy, uh, does positive community building and helps people whenever they get home as well. Reaching out from within is a uh, support group that is led by currently incarcerated people where they study topics related to anger management and conflict resolution and trauma-informed care and that sort of thing. And they also have a strong network on the outside. On the Missouri side, there are good initiatives going on when it comes to education And this happens in prisons all over the place. Many people get their GEDs while they're inside of prisons. Um, There are uh, in here in Kansas City, there is a correctional institution called the Transition Center of Kansas City, which before COVID was a minimum security prison. And now it's underneath probation and parole. It's actually a place where people who are finishing up their prison sentences and coming back to this area but don't have a home plan yet can land for a while while they're getting reacclimated to the community. And that Transition Center of Kansas City is working closely with a nonprofit here in Kansas City called the Center for Conflict Resolution on building a restorative justice community. So they have circles every morning where they meet with residents. They don't call them offenders. They don't call them felons. They call them residents and staff and talk about what's going on in their area, what's coming up, what do they have going on. And they're working really hard to bring a lot of community partners down there so that people have connections with organizations on the outside. Um, A lot of what you said here. um, So what, from my studies of the prison systems a little bit, I've learned a little bit about um, they talk about one of the most important things for people who are incarcerated is to, to engage in what they call cognitive behavioral therapy. And the idea is it's a, it's about reframing situations. So, um, for example, anger, anger management, when something happens, it's to think about the situation, reframe it, and figure out, like, okay, how do I need to handle this? Um, so, for example, most of us, when we lose a job, um, we think about like, I'm going to go up and get another job the next morning. If I've grown up in a, in a situation with poverty, I might have a different set of life choices that have been given to me. I mean, just like, well, maybe how do I make my money or whatever I have to do? And I might turn to crime for that. But one of the things they said about one of these big things is giving by giving people new tools and new ways to reframe things and think about things differently. So for example, if you, if your only opportunity to make money is, uh, something that, that is not legal, then those are your choices that are presented to you, right? Whereas when you go into these prison systems, and, and I think 
what you said there is really interesting. Like reframing, um, they talk about rehousing these people. Like you know, it's like you don't call them offenders or anything else. It's they're now people. They're now residents. You know, and that sounds like a more inclusive model. And if you start thinking about yourself as a resident as opposed to a prisoner, that's a very I think that's a very powerful framework to operate under. Um, I'm not trying to oversimplify either, but um, I know there's a lot there. So, in particular, what uh, in regards to the stuff you do, what unique opportunities or challenges do you see coming for Kansas City in the coming few years? Like, what do you see on the horizon? A big challenge, and I'm far from the first person to say this, but is affordable housing. We feel that really specifically and in really dire ways whenever it comes to working in reentry and helping formerly incarcerated people because there's already so many stigmas when it comes to renting to formerly incarcerated people. We, a few years ago in Kansas City, did in Casey Mo pass Ban the Box, which makes it a city statute that you can't have uh, or you convicted of a felony on the application for housing and for employment. Uh, that ban the box measure is only as effective as it is enforced. And I've heard from the communities that it may not be enforced as well as it could be. And also just because someone doesn't ask on an initial application doesn't mean that they're not eventually going to do the search and perhaps deny you housing. And so affordable housing and safe and decent housing is a big problem for a lot of people in Kansas City, but especially for people who have been incarcerated before. Are there any ways you think that there are things, either conversation need to be had or the organizations who are working to make that like mixed use developments? Is there anybody you see who's doing stuff in that to help in that aspect? There's definitely positive things going on. I, I don't off the top of my head know the name of those organizations, but housing is just a really, really tricky problem right now. And I think it goes beyond one of the things that gets the most airtime in the news and stuff are the disputes that happen between tenants and landlords. And I think it is important to pay attention to those things. And it is important to acknowledge the power dynamics that are at play there. But that's far from the only problem going on in housing. It's not just greedy landlords and it's not just bad tenants. Um, I'm far from an Uber expert in this area, but I've learned from people who have been home builders in our city for decades that a big part of the problem is just available housing stock, is just how much housing is out there. And there was a big slump in building new housing when in the Great Recession in 2008, and it hasn't caught up. Uh, cities like ours and across the nations, across the nation, we are hundreds of thousands of housing uh, stock short in many, many areas. And that will drive prices up. I mean, that's just basic supply and demand. And so that's not an easy problem to fix right now either, because if someone is going to decide to go into home building or if someone is in home building, costs are really high when it comes to supply and labor. So it's not the most lucrative thing to build affordable housing. It's the most lucrative thing to build luxury housing. And so maybe, but not really, there could be a trickle down effect there because it opens up other housing stock, but nothing happens quickly and it's hard to make large enough things happen to make a really big change happen. I'm glad that the problems around affordable housing are on more people's radars, but it's not something that we're going to be able to fix overnight. It's something that we'll have to continue to pay attention to and make a top priority. Um, so this kind of leads into my next question. Um, so you're kind of someone in the know um, based on what's going on in this area, um, not just affordable housing, but in incarceration, recidivism. You're kind of a, you're kind of a community expert in a way. How do you approach um, kind of collaborating, uh, collaboration and fostering unity within, within your community or in your field? Like how do you get people who were formerly incarcerated? How do you get people who were, um, who were maybe sympathetic or may be able to help bring these things together? I mean, how do you help foster that kind of uh, connection? Yeah. Community collaboration and working with other organizations is 
crucial. It's essential to the work that we do because I described earlier starting Determination Incorporated. And one of my first steps was getting to know the reentry organizations that su- provide support in these other areas. And we don't do the same things that they do. So we refer to those organizations all the time and they refer to us whenever they have a client who's interested in entrepreneurship. And there are different coalitions that exist in reentry to keep these organizations connected. And I think that's really important because we don't want to work in silos and we don't want to recreate the wheel all over the place. I mentioned earlier the organization Reaching Out From Within. They do a really awesome annual event called the Courage to Change Symposium. And uh, I had the honor this year of serving as the chair of the committee that put it together. And they've been doing it for, I believe, seven years now. And it's an awesome event that they have at a hotel in Kansas where they invite folks who work in reentry and they invite the staff of the department of corrections and they invite people who are interested in the topic and they invite formerly incarcerated people and they invite leadership from the department of corrections all to come together to learn about what's going on in the area, but also what on a grander scale is going on around the nation and even the world that could be brought here and improve our system here in the area. And One thing that really stuck out to me from that symposium, they have the top leadership from the Missouri and the Kansas prison. So the head of the prison system in Kansas, his name is Jeff Zamuda in Missouri. Her name is Ann Precythe. And they were on a panel together and they were sharing about what's going on in the prison systems and what they're working on. And I heard Ann say something a couple times and she's from North Carolina, I believe. I don't want to get that wrong because she would say a snide, funny comment if I got her Carolina wrong, but she has a very sweet Southern accent is why I bring it up. She's from one of the Carolinas, <laughs> either North or South. She's from the best Carolina. Yes, we'll just exactly. call it that. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And I'm glad that we could talk about her. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, I, I had the mic and I said, uh, Anna, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you just say that when someone goes to prison, being removed from society is enough of a punishment and prison doesn't need to be more of a punishment? And she said, yeah, that's what I said. (laughs) I knew I was going to try and it wasn't going to go that well. But yeah, it was. Yeah, that's what she said. And I just turned to everyone in the crowd, you know, all these Department of Correction staff and reentry staff. And I just said to all my colleagues, like, this is our moment, folks, like do good work because she is protecting you from the whims of the legislature and other opinions that may be out there. And she wants to create a more compassionate, more restorative prison system. And it takes time to change a big ship like that. But with leadership like that, now's the time to try and make positive changes in the system. And that was really heartening for me. I want you to, uh, if you can, you share a personal experience or lesson, or maybe one of the people you've worked with um, that has significantly shaped your perspective on things. It could be personal, or it could be somebody you've worked with, et cetera. What, how has your perspective changed based on either being in the system, working with people in the system, or based on the work you're doing now? What's First coming to mind, and I can share more about people that we've worked with as well who have inspired me, but what's first coming to mind is when we think about people who are in prison and we think about it in a political way, maybe on the right side of the aisle, there is there can be too much of the, uh, look what they did, uh, they deserve to be punished, throw them in prison. And then on the left side of the aisle, there can be a lot of, but look at the environment that they're in. Look at the issues that they're dealing with. We need to have more compassion. And I think one of the things that's become really solidified for me in doing this work is that it seems to me that the answer is really somewhere in the gray area in the middle of those two things, is really in the messy middle. Because you don't want to lean too far and say, we just need to have endless compassion for people uh, because things were so difficult because that really steals the agency from someone. They were a human being who made a decision and who hopefully want to make better decisions later on in life. But we also just can't say, 
hey, look at the terrible decision they made without looking the environments that people are coming from. So I think it's important to spend more time in that gray area because at the end of the day, it is a human being who got put in prison and it is a human being who's going to come home from prison and they have to do what's best for them and what's best for their family. And they have to believe that that's possible. They have to choose to do the right thing. They have to choose to be on the positive side of life instead of taking from others. And so in order for them to believe that about themselves, it's important that we believe that about them as well. When it comes to folks who we've worked with who have inspired me, I'm, I'm really moved by whenever you meet someone who's been to prison and who has made it through that experience and is starting a business now, who's just the kindest, gentlest, sweetest person that you've ever met. Because I think it can, I can even imagine myself just getting really, really bitter in that situation. Uh, but there's a gentleman who, uh, his name is Ricky Kidd, and, and Ricky was in prison for over 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. And now Ricky is out and he does great work with the Innocence Project. And he also does great work leading seminars about resiliency. And Ricky says, uh, get better, not bitter. And I think when people are able to achieve that, that's really inspiring. Uh, I had an experience that's coming to mind now. There's a gentleman in our community named Richard who, when he was in prison, he was a part of an intensive therapeutic community where they had certain uh, rules and customs that they used in their housing unit to help people follow the rules and to really create, instead of a top down, here are the rules because that's what the staff member said, it was actually the people in the community reinforcing the values and the rules of that community. Um, they called it their, uh, oh, we called it Circle Up. He had a slightly different name to it that's not occurring to me right now, but just an opportunity for people to encourage one another to do the right thing. And we actually ended up taking what he learned from that community and adapting it into ways that our entrepreneurs could use to lead crews in their businesses so that people could help their employees, the people that they're working with, create a more positive environment and create a good culture. So to take something that came from prison and to adapt it to make your business better, I think is really remarkable. Um, you said it's uh, getting better, not bitter or getting mm -hmm. uh, get better, not bitter. That's a that's a pretty powerful message. Um, so um, beyond that, are any of the local leaders in kind of the Kansas City community who you look up to right now or who inspire you? And uh, Determination Incorporated right now, you said, you know, this person really makes me realize that we're doing good work or this person makes me want to do more. I'm really inspired by, uh, I mentioned the Transition Center for Kansas City and uh, two of the leaders there who are running that program are Michelle Tippy, who is the head of the Transition Center of Kansas City. So she works for the Department of Corrections and then Greg Winship works with the Center for Conflict Resolution, which is the nonprofit that they're working with to create the restorative justice community. And I'm very inspired by both of them because they're in the trenches doing the work, but they also have a big perspective, a wide angle lens for the work that they're doing as well. And M Michelle creating a brand new program and working through all the bureaucracy of working with the state and working with the prison system and also working with an entirely new crew and having to find the right people to be in those positions, I think is just remarkable work. And she's so positive every time I talk to her and she just realizes that you just have to move it one step at a time. And, and things will never be perfect, but you can always be heading in the right direction. And then Greg is actually a formerly incarcerated person himself who has dedicated his life to restorative justice and has really worked tirelessly to bring more compassionate practices to Kansas City 
and specifically to the Transition Center of Kansas City that I think is instilling a lot of new ideas in people's minds. Um, you mentioned earlier how it's remarkable to even call someone in a correctional institution a resident instead of an offender. That would be the usual language, an offender. And I think that's a seemingly small thing, but like you said, creates a big mindset shift. And also when you start to think about all the ramifications of what does it mean for someone to be a resident and what positive support would you provide to someone? How would you be hospitable instead of punishing someone creates a lot of changes as well. And that just makes me think of the people who work in the Department of Corrections, which I, I want to point out, we've been talking about the system and how much there is to improve. The staff members of the Department of Corrections are rarely the problem. Can they sometimes be the problem? Sure. But also, these are very hardworking public servants who have one of the most difficult jobs in our state, who are doing their best to uh, do something positive with the work that they're doing and be a positive influence on the people who they serve, which are currently incarcerated people. And we shouldn't just assume that because someone is a correction staff member that they're on the wrong side, that they're working for the man. That's very much not the case. These are people who are really trying to do something better and make changes. And they're doing it in the hardiest, hardest, dirtiest, most difficult way, which is actually just being on the ground, working in the system every day. Um, I want to thank you for even just acknowledging that. I think a lot of times the narrative we get on um, on the outside of these things is that like, you know, the prison guards and you're right. I mean, invariably, you're going to have some people who are part of the problem. But most of these people are in the system and are trying to make positive change. And I think that's that's something a lot of us kind of lose perspective of. Uh, just like we lose perspective of people when they end up in the penal system. Another thing I really liked that you said earlier is kind of how there's a balanced approach. You know, there can be too much, you know, kind of red meat on the right wing of the aisle. And at the same time, there can be too much. Um, and I, I don't want to say kumbaya because that sounds real derogatory as well. But you can end up with extremes. And, and the messy middle is where a lot of the work gets done. You know, there are reasons prisons exist and, and there are consequences to actions. And so I think it's important that you you said that. And I, that was interesting. It was as a refreshing perspective. I think we, you know, we don't always get when we ask these questions. So as you continue to work with Determination Incorporated and in your own journey, what role do you hope to play in the future of Kansas City? Oh, I'm just trying to help people one person at a time. <laughs> I I I think that being a social entrepreneur and, you know, I've been working on Determination Incorporated for five years now. I started off with a lot of idealism and a lot of big ideas and a lot of uh, we can we can change the world. And, and uh, I'm I've come back to reality in a lot of ways. I mean, that's actually been really tangible for our organization. So I have this shirt on that says Visioneer, uh, which we give to folks who participate in our program because they're engineering our vision. And our original vision for Determination Incorporated, the first time I ever wrote it down, was that formerly incarcerated people by starting viable hiring businesses will help to solve the problem of recidivism and ultimately end mass incarceration. It's such a great line. It gets so many claps and pats on the back, but it's really not realistic. And I don't, I think if you had told me that five years ago and specifically, I mean the end of it end mass incarceration is not realistic. That has a lot that is a much bigger scope than one small organization helping formerly incarcerated entrepreneurs can feasibly touch. Um, but if you had told me that when I first started the organization, I would have said, but you're not dreaming big enough. And there's something beautiful about that. But I think there's also something beautiful and important about the change that we've made to that vision statement, where now it reads that formerly incarcerated people by starting viable hiring businesses, help to solve the problem of recidivism, create financial freedom, and build intergenerational wealth. That's much more tangible and much more focused for our organization and the work that we do with people. 
I just want to share that just as a lesson that I've learned as a social entrepreneur, because it's very, very easy to experience burnout in this area. And you, you know, got to say, uh, the serenity prayer every day and, you know, just try and focus on the stuff that you can control and, you know, have the courage to deal with the things that are out of your control. And I just think that's an important lesson that I've learned along the way. Got it. Um, To that kind of point though, I mean, building generational wealth, ending the cycle of recidivism. I mean, if you multiply that out, I mean, you could have a future, but we can't, we're only part of that. We'll never live to see the end of this, right? And and mass incarceration will probably it's been with humans since you know we've since we came down from the trees. You know, it's been there's been something, some kind of part of that that's always been part of the, the situation. Um, I see what you're saying too about burnout, though, because I mean, definitely, if you feel responsible for that, it's like, have I not done enough? You know what I mean? It's like, I, I could, I think that could be very toxic at some level. You know, you could end up with a situation where you kind of, you feel like even though you've accomplished these great tangible things with a lot of these individuals, I mean, your numbers for 2022, you know, I read some stuff about you before the interview today. And, um, and I was like, man, that's, that's great. You know, we worked with, uh, I think you had nine different individuals that you helped um, in the process in 2022. Is that correct? Uh, well, through our Rise Up Get Started program, um, the, on, on average in 2022, we served 50 formerly incarcerated people a month. Yeah. Um, what you're speaking of specifically is the data that we collected for our Second Chance Entrepreneur Dashboard, yeah. Yeah, which we started doing a couple years ago, where we looked at people who went through our Rise Up Get Started matching grant program and saw that the average annual revenue for the businesses, these are businesses that are under three years old, were $54,000 with one outlier grossing over $400,000 in her business. Um, these folks created seven full-time jobs and supported, I believe, 45 contract positions so that they're creating work. Um, most of the folks gave back to the community by volunteering. And importantly to us, there was a 0% recidivism rate. Those folks did not return to prison. So those are the sorts of impact measures that we try and keep track of. I think that's that's laudable and that's really cool. So for people listening to this show, how can our listeners get involved to either support you or support your initiatives? Yeah, definitely follow us on social media and at Determination Incorporated on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And be sure to go to our website, which is here on my shirt, unlockeship.org. That's short for entrepreneurship, by the way. It's also determinationincorporated.org as well. Uh, and sign up for a High Five Thursday newsletter so that you can hear and read stories about the entrepreneurs that we're working with and consider doing business with them. We have folks all the time who reach out and say, hey, do you know an electrician? Do you have a painter? Uh, do you do know anyone who does catering? I know all those folks and many others. Always happy to answer those questions and make referrals. And then lastly, I would invite people to invest in our mission as well. We invite people to invest at a level of $20 a month or $250 once, which allows us to keep doing this work and supporting second chance entrepreneurs. And folks who invest at that level get a t-shirt that looks like this, but it says investor on the front of it. And they know that they're a part of our community as well. I've got to ask, best barbecue in Kansas City. What is it? Where is it? I hesitate to say best barbecue in Kansas City because I don't want to pretend like I've tried them all out and I had some rubric and I was really judging what was the best. All I can say is that when people, when I have friends visiting from out of town, this actually happened this past Sunday, and they say they want barbecue. I always take them to Char Bar in Westport. It has very delicious barbecue. I love their sandwiches. There's fun stuff you can do outside, like play cornhole and enjoy the sun. So I usually take people to Char Bar in Westport. Do they have any standout dish or anything you say, man, this is really good there? I'm not going to remember the name of their sandwiches off the top of my head, but... I always look at their sandwich section because it it's a fun combination of meat. And I prefer the sandwiches because, you know, you get to throw a pickle or some jalapeno or something a little bit different in there to mix it up a little bit. And I also think their uh, appetizers are really good. They have some grits 
and uh, some cornbread that's delicious. And the last time I was there, when I was there on Sunday, I actually got their grilled pimento cheese sandwich and added pulled pork. And that was really delicious. So, yeah. It's a char bar in Westport. Yes. Okay, we'll have to check that out. And uh, that's the first time I've heard anybody mention grits since I've been in Kansas City. So I'm going to definitely have to check that out. Uh, I was born and raised in – well, not born in, but I was raised in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So grits are kind of part and parcel. Well, you know better for me, but I'm a sucker for anything with lots of butter and cheese in hey, it. Hey, that's the only way to have them, right? So, okay. So I have a few more questions uh, just to finish up here. Uh, what is one actionable piece of advice you'd like to share with our listeners if they either want to get involved or be involved? What is something you would tell them that they want to take action or get involved? What would they do? Uh, I think that if – People believe that it is important that employers consider formerly incarcerated people, that one of the most powerful things that they can do is go to their HR department and ask, do we hire formerly incarcerated people? Uh, Like, do we have anything that's on our books that stop us from hiring formerly incarcerated people? And if they do have those things on their books, really taking a look at them and saying like, is this of benefit to us or is it just exclusionary for the sake of being exclusionary? Like really thinking about why is this here and should someone having a criminal record really preclude them from working in our environment? Uh, I think that's something that people can do that could make a meaningful difference in our community. What do you love most about Kansas City and what makes it stand out from other cities? What I love most about Kansas City is that there are a lot of people here who are taking care of each other. Uh, I think we can see that at the very top. And I'm thinking about the Chiefs. You know, I'm thinking about the positive relationship that Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey have. And I've been a really big fan of Travis Kelsey's podcast with his brother, Jason Kelsey, and hearing about how things are in the locker room and the really close relationships that they have. And I think it's cool that these champions, you know, world champions that bring so such a great spotlight to Kansas City, just the great relationships that they have with each other and how much they prioritize taking care of their team members. And we see it all the way up there. And I see it every day in the work that we do and in the colleagues that I have the chance to work with. And I think if we're all able to, through the years, just expand that circle of compassion, that will help make us better and also make our city better. And that takes time because, you know, it's it's easier to just be in our own little bubbles. Uh, Kansas City was built on segregation and that's a whole nother topic, you know, redlining leading to the suburbs being built and stuff. And that segregation is still very much a part of how the city operates. But if you realize that, then you can start to take small steps to grow your network and to reach out to different people and people with different experiences and different backgrounds and different lives than yourself. And that's when good things start to happen. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. This has been uh, Kyle J. Benson-Smith with Determination Incorporated. And I, I just want to um, give you a heartfelt thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, David, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the KC Leaders Podcast. Please remember to like, share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen. For more information about this podcast, you can visit kcleaderspodcast.com. And don't forget to check out our other great podcasts like The Buck Stops Here, streaming now on all major platforms and at thebuckstopsherepodcast.com.